Welcome to A Regenerative Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers. This is the podcast where we talk about permaculture solutions that get us into that regenerative future that we all want. So today we're going to be listening to an excerpt from the audiobook for The Permaculture Student 2. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the Advanced Permaculture Student Online, which is launching again this October, October 21st, for the second time. This is an incredible program. This is considered the best permaculture program available online. And it is the most thorough permaculture program in the world. It's the only one based on peer-reviewed curriculum, the only one with over 70 educators, experts from around the world covering the broadest spectrum of regenerative solutions. In my, the way I see it, there's a regenerative twin to every role we have in this current world. Even the awful things people are doing, what are they actually trying to do? What are their actual objectives? Well, there's a regenerative twin. There's a peaceful way. There's a, there's a positive, natural solution that accomplishes that same root goal and need because all all needs are universal humans and people all over the world we're all similar we're all on the same path trying to reach for that regenerative abundance trying to find solutions to the common problems that we're all facing and what's so powerful and empowering is that we now have the information to really take that that those struggles, those problems that we're all facing, each in our own unique, different way, we're, we're able to stack them up and look at them clearly for the first time in history. We're able to see the solutions and how they're common to them all. We're able to see how all our problems are linked. We're able to see how the environment and social are always linked. And so our perspective our very, you know, the genetic expression uh, that we live day to day, all these things are malleable, are changeable. These things are all new too. So we are at an incredible time period in history where we can really change ourselves, we can adapt ourselves to such unbelievably incredible new places. And it is just that people have no idea for the most part, what's possible. We've been miseducated, we've been led astray, we've been distracted, and we've been given wrong information. So we, we, we now have to re-inoculate ourselves with the natural systems, the actual systems, the actual human systems, the actual nature, you know, the natural systems that exist, that are waiting for us to correct course, to realign ourselves with the natural patterns, to heal ourselves, to find that health that we desperately need, to find that social connection that we desperately need, to find those renewable energy sources, to have all those waste streams, you know, instead of becoming this weight that we have to deal with, instead become this gift to ourselves that constantly makes the world a better place. And that's what's waiting for us solutions that are so incredible they exponentially get greater and are more powerful and important as they develop and that's what permaculture is really rooted in that's what regeneration the regenerative movement is all rooted in and that's what i teach to people all over the world using my curriculum which is the first of its kind in permaculture the first of its kind in education everywhere so this, this, this program is absolutely critically important. 
I know I, I used to term regenerative, you term permaculture, but the reality is what I'm doing is combined, corrected, and streamlined so much of the information out there that it kind of is, you know, I could come up with my own word, but the reality is these words are so accurate, we're all using them because we're all getting them, partially because of the, the amount of information that's been put out by all the people before us and all the people now currently with us. But there's never been this this moment. There's never been this time period where we've been so connected. And that's what my book really represents. That's what my course really represents. It's the fact that we all are connected with this cusp moment of understanding and comprehension where we can see from micro to macro. Crystal clear. We can work from the micro to the macro and have these huge trophic cascades of positivity happen. We have positive tipping points happening all over the place, all over the map. It's just not reaching us through the, you know, the media, the multimedia, and that's just the way our current system is designed. Um, fear, anger, you know, hatred, those kinds of things are driving the media, and so it's driving you know, the media to the extreme, to the fake news. And so no one trusts the media anymore. People don't trust governments anymore. Um, things are changing rapidly, and you know, governments are responding. You know, maybe not our government, but governments are responding all over the world and and adapting and realizing that we've really entered a new era, a new um, stage in human existence. So, we have the opportunity to seize this understanding, this perspective that we are all in this together. We are all one. We've got all these universal needs. Our concerns, all these conflicts, all these tensions have resolvable resolvable roots and so we just need to step in with the solutions and this chapter which i'm so excited about this is my favorite chapter in the permaculture student two and this is a, a you know this is like the crown piece you know this week in the course week 19 is 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 the crown jewel moment where all your understanding, all your lenses are so well developed that when we go through these examples, you're seeing it on such a deep and articulative level that you really can apply, analyze, uh, critique even, um, and then create uh, at such a high level because, because of what we've gone through in the five months of education that led up to this moment. So. This, this, this is one of my favorite chapters in the book. This dovetails with everything I'm trying to do, everything I'm working on. And this really shows you the swing of permaculture in my courses. You know, it, it includes you know, biointensive market gardening like Jean-Martin Frottier. Uh, he's working on programs and systems right now for perennial market gardening. So permaculture market gardening. So there's, there's so much to this, right? And so we really have to show the spectrum because people who are wanting to eat annuals, or they're gonna have to do biointensive, really, um, or mimic that sort of thing in an annual and perennial setting, an agroforestry setting or something like that, but you're still gonna be doing biointensive methods. So the reality is if you want annuals, you're gonna be at the doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And then the flip side of it is it's like you go all the way to the other side. You've got Masadubu Fukuoka, do nothing farming, you know, natural farming, all this stuff. So in between this spectrum, there is so much uh, variation. And depending on our context, depending on the situation, depending on the part of our yard or part of our system or a segment of, of a cycle, we, we can choose 
whether we're going to want to be like hands-on micromanaging, you know, uh, biointensive, you know, planting four plantings a season, you're, you're pulling and transplanting, boom, 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 boom. Or, or you've got this totally natural thing where you're not pruning and it's got its own time cycle and all this. Whatever fits you in that moment, I want you to feel like you can use that solution because guess what? They're all regenerative and, and, and there's, there's a spectrum to that. There's a speed. There's all these different caveats for, for application and benefit, you know, and sacrifice and cost and all this stuff. But, but the reality is if we don't have that full spectrum, we'll never be able to progress um, and synthesize and be creative with all these different pieces. So I really believe in showing this spectrum of regeneration and not just like, this is permaculture and then like have it be your backyard permaculture. Cause that's the, that's the, the, the biggest problem with uh, like PDCs that you see and then uh, people who teach online is they teach their backyard. They're not teaching, um, or they're, they're bioregional, which is great. And they, they, they state that and that's perfect. But when people are just teaching permaculture, and they, they, they color it with their climate or their bias or the limitations of their education, then it tends to give this uh, very limited, you know, small straw, you know, of, of comprehension for what it actually is because it's gigantic. It's huge. And it's so hopeful, inspiring, exciting, and all-encompassing. And I really feel that unless you're teaching that larger vision of permaculture, you're not gonna reach everyone. You're not gonna honor everyone and you're not gonna give them the pieces they need to see it as what it really is. So that's why I do that in my course. That's why you know we, we, we cover everything. Um, and that's why these examples in this chapter that you're about to listen to are, are so wide ranging. You know, it goes all over the map. Um, so I hope that you dig it. I hope that you download the ebook because the ebook is yours to download. If you download, click on that link below. And I hope that you sign up for the Advanced Permaculture Student Online because this course, people who have taken PDCs, people who have studied with the best PD teachers like Jeff Lawton, um, people who have studied with Elaine Ingham, they are all finding my course to be the best course available, the most thorough permaculture course, the, most, the, the, the reviews are so incredible. I'm so honored and excited to have this amazing thing created and continuously expanding. Because I mean, I'm, I'm just adding uh, all the documentaries we made down in Mexico, the Chinampa restoration, the Aztec Chinampas. They are not what we thought they were. There's a lot more going on, sophisticated, fascinating. They're regularly aerating the mud and the soil beneath the Chinampa canals. Yes, 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 crazy. They're regularly doing that. So it's not quite anaerobic because it's regularly aerated. So yeah, yeah, there's so much to it. There, there's a, I wanna get down there with the microscope. So there's very, very specific things happening in Mexico. They're absolutely stunning, absolutely amazing. Indigenous wisdom and a lot of the things that, you know, we talk about in permaculture that are just techniques. I'm finding all these indigenous examples of where they came from and I really want to highlight those and in my course we do you know a lot of people say I'm teaching from history's perspective but I like to gather in all the roots and sources for all these things and honor those people because the reality is the story of humanity is the story of permaculture it's our perspective of that of, of who we are and how we've interacted with nature 
for 95% of our existence. Maybe a little bit more for some cultures than that. But for the past 10,000 years, we've, you know, we've been destructive. We've been destroying nature in order to survive and expand. But the reality is for 95% of our existence as anatomical human beings, homo sapiens, 200,000 years we've had this brain, body, palate. We have been having a compostable culture. And if anything, you want to you get some real, real wild? Here we go. Aboriginal women in Australia were cooking bread at least 30,000 years before Egyptians were. If all the timelines are to be believed and they're not older and Aborigines uh, of Australia appear to be the first to have left Africa. They appear to have been leaving by boat, if that's possible. And if not, then they started in Australia as they purport they did and that they're separate. I mean, it's unbelievably fascinating and interesting when you start learning their history, learning their practices, seeing how they are the longest lasting culture. They are the longest, peace, most peaceful, most regenerative culture on the planet. The Aborigines of Australia. And they are the people who inspired Bill Mollison. And Bill Mollison studied and wrote more about Aborigines than anything else. So there's a great deal to the story of permaculture that has yet to be shared. And in my course, I have attempted to really dive in and sink our teeth into the full story, the roots, the indigenous roots of all these stories, and to really provide the connections between all the disciplines. So renewable energy, urban permaculture, social permaculture, starting with principles. We, got, we need social permaculture principles, right? That's why I have them. So I, that's been my mission, and it's been absolutely the greatest work of my entire life. It has changed me. It has made me so excited and hopeful, so proud to be human. And I know that sounds odd probably to some folks. We're like, oh man, we're so destructive. We're the virus. We're the cancer. But that, that matrix perspective really you know, is, is a, is a, uh, you know, it's a, a two-sided sword. We, we have the choice. We can be cut or we can cut. You know, we can, we can grow or we can degenerate. We can regenerate or we can degenerate. The, the choice is ours. Uh, our bodies, we're either in de defense and decay or we are in growth. We're not in both. You can't be in both. And it's the same way with our world, the same way with our culture, the same way with everything. And so we're at this cusp moment where we really need to dive down deep. And we need to see who we are, see what is human. And that takes looking at the archaeological history. This, the, the, I mean, the fact that George Washington thought America was going to fall because of soil erosion. The fact that that you know the Romans and the Greeks were concerned about agriculture and tillage. The fact that, I mean, this is so old. The story that we have been talking about that we call climate change is 10,000 years old. And unless you have that perspective, unless you really understand how soil works, how the history plays into it, how indigenous wisdom and practices have all fallen into this and given us the understanding of the key components we need to get to the next stage in human evolution. I feel like you don't have the whole picture and that's why I created the Advanced Permaculture Student Online 
because I knew that there was more to tell. There's more to the story. There's 150 hours right now in the course of videos. There is going to probably be over 200 by the end of the year. We, we, are, we are constantly growing this course and people are constantly finding new things, making new discoveries that need to be shared and, and explored and tested. You know, and we only can do that in a community, this lateral, facilitative, supportive community that is my course. And I really hope that you join us. It's, I'm the facilitator, you know, I'm the person that mycelium connected it all. And I'm also the host, you know, I'm guiding, I'm, I'm doing some lecture, I'm doing some how-to, but we're going around meeting people. We're having people send in videos. We're watching some some of the source material that went into my book. We're reading some of the source material that went into my book. I got supplemental reading like crazy. So um, just because you know we start with my book as the, the foundation doesn't mean that we don't have the option to read the supplemental materials, which were actually the citations, you know, for that and the, and the quotes in that you know that chapter in that section. So we, we really do it all. It's like a college course. Um, uh, people have compared it to a university or grad school education in an online course. Actually, folks are saying they're learning more in my course than they did in all their time at university. People are saying it's the best course they've ever taken. People are saying that they've never had education change their life like this. And these are people who have taken PDCs. These are people that have taught PDCs. It's it's really incredible and for me it's me applying all the educational best practices and using leveraging all the experiments i've done in classrooms with thousands of students over years of study and practice working with other teachers and other schools all over the country and I, at this point i really feel like it's like getting out of the way it's like getting out of the way so that you can make those connections and feel it. Instead of me telling you what those connections are and telling you what it should feel like, creating the situation where you create that and own that 100% and then that's yours. That's your special discovery and experience. And, and it's like, I was there, sure, I've, I facilitated, sure, but what's this moment really about? You know what I mean? It's about you and your connection, your growth. and, and it, that empowerment, that, 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 that's what I want. And that's what I've been trained for. That's what I've been building for. And that's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm here to help you change your life. I'm here to help you change your community and change the world. Um, this isn't about me. This is about all of us. This is about you. This is about your children, your community, your future. And we're in it together. And I'm just really honored, really, really honored. I mean, I, Think about it this way. All the people that I looked up to, that I studied from, they literally turned around and then taught me one-on-one -on -one. and then peer-reviewed, gave me quotes, edits, feedback, and then joined with me in my actual course, taking this book and making it into a living, breathing online course with videos and interaction and for me it, it it's like i was writing about like the touring rock band and then they like were like well come on let's go and tour man and i'm like okay <laughs> so so for me it was just this incredible thing it's just like i i of course understand the mechanics of how all these things work and i just 
put them together and it just lights up and it really is me getting out of the way it's honoring you honoring the capacity and the um, the majesty within every person to know what is right regardless of what someone is telling you i know you have greatness in you you have the you have the answers you have the answers and all i have to do is show you information connecting it all and you have it in you and you go yeah yeah what's that confirmation that you feel when you when you get the new information that you're about to hear you're about to hear all this new information and the entire time you're gonna have this little voice that's in your heart go yeah oh yeah i feel that yes yes do it make that change make that regeneration and what that is is the confirmation of truth within your body within you meaning you already knew you already knew that was true so when you heard it it wasn't like wait i don't understand let me think about that no 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 you instantly understood it was it went right into you deep and you were like yes why because you already knew it why because you knew it was true why because it's the right thing it's not about my book it's not about me it's this is about information that is a human right on this planet this is about information that's keyed into your dna so that those blueprints when your epigenetics above your genes read it you get that confirmation that this is who you are that this is true that that humans are not the destroyers humans are the regenerative stewards of the planet so let this confirmation that you're going to feel build within you and let that certainty that you know all this is possible that you know that within you that you know this is true to grow and build and lead you to action check out my book join my course build that garden go out and go to that meeting make those connections write that book write that blog make that video reach out to the world start making a difference start composting all your waste start you know buying only things that are 100% recyclable or compostable do what you need to do get it done and listen to this because this chapter will give you the tools to make higher level decisions and to be inspired to combine creatively all these different disciplines. I hope that you enjoy it. This is Permaculture in Action. Chapter 21, Permaculture in Action. This list of applied permaculture examples shares a spectrum of examples where permaculture is applied. They do not represent all that is possible, nor do they represent all who are actively using permaculture to be more regenerative and profitable in their business or service. They are simply a selection of regenerative examples to share the many ways permaculture is being applied. Zaytuna Farm, reviewed by Jeff Lawton.
This permaculture demonstration site in northern New South Wales, Australia was once an ecologically degraded dairy farm and is now 66 acres, 27 hectares of detailed and vibrant subtropical food forests, gardens, ponds and more designed to educate and inspire. It is an off-grid permaculture paradise. In development since 2001, world-renowned permaculture educators Jeff and Nadia Lawton regularly host groups of students, interns, homeschoolers, and tours. Jeff's farm has seemingly everything. Permaculture techniques and methods can be found in practice all over. They are off the electrical grid with solar power and their own generator. Their hot water comes from a rocket stove water heater. The toilets are all composting toilets and the gray water reed bed system is inspected and approved by local state officials. There is a metal shop, student kitchen, a commercial kitchen and housing for their family workers and interns. Sustainable materials like bamboo, which is on site, straw bales and natural plaster are sourced for building projects big and small whenever possible. Zaytuna is a full cycle farm that includes animals, people and plants working together in harmonious cycles to produce an abundance of food that supports 45 people on site. Permaculture techniques like remineralization of soils using animals, compost, insect hotels, cell grazing of cattle, food forestry, biointensive gardening, and more are demonstrated and taught to students on site and through Jeff's online courses. Animal systems using ducks, chickens, cattle, and more are also constantly in operation. Using permaculture as the lens, Interns learn about gardening, farming, dairy operations, omnivores, and cattle in context using permaculture techniques hands-on. Zaytuna Farm yields top-notch students and educators who continue to spread permaculture to people all over the world. Polyface Farm, reviewed by Joel Saladin. Joel Saladin's 550-acre, 222-hectare family farm, Polyface, began in 1961 as an eroded, gullied, and worn-out farm. Joel and his father before him stewarded the land through an amazing recovery using a sophisticated holistic management system involving chickens, turkeys, cows, pigs, earthworms, and soil microbiology. Joel happily calls himself a grass farmer because that is the basis for his entire ecosystem, the annual solar energy trapped by grasses. Grass-based farming focuses on increasing the perennial grasses potential to photosynthesize, store carbon and rebound from grazing while turning a profit. Specifically, that means rotational grazing timed perfectly where animals are held at beneficial ratios of grazing space to animal density for a day or less. Cattle grazing is followed by chickens a few days after to spread out the cow manure, ending pest cycles while feeding the birds high protein fly larvae. This imitates the phenomenon observed in nature where birds travel and live in symbiosis with herbivores, spreading their manures eating larvae out of the manures and keeping parasites in check. In terms of animal secession, turkeys can follow the chickens, goats and sheep can clear brush and grasses to prepare the way for cows initially. Joel's operation is mature and focuses primarily on cows, chickens, 
layers and broilers, turkeys, and pigs. He integrates their systems ingeniously, following the animal's instincts and desires as his guiding ethic. Saladin's approximately 100 cows graze 100 acres, 40 acres, about one acre, 40,000 square meters at a time using portable electric fencing. The paddocks are roughly all at the same elevation since different elevations have grasses germinating and developing at different times and rates. They return to the same area two to three times a season at most. They only spend 24 hours in any one space to avoid the second bite effect. Perennial pasture grasses have evolved to thrive when eaten to the ground in one grazing event by herbivores, and then allowed to regrow as the tightly packed herd of grazers moved on, pressured by their natural predators. This process, unhindered in prehistory, created the deep, rich soils that humans naturally were drawn to for practicing agriculture. If we allow a second bite by grazing the following day, we interrupt the plant recovery and regrowth, which will begin to push the pasture holistically, soil, animals, and plants into decline. This is why grazers have been blamed for creating desertification. While more accurately speaking, it was grazing management that was at fault. Following after the cows are the laying hens in an eggmobile, a simple portable shelter, featured earlier in Convection, page 22, that lacks an electric fence. They have feed, pasture, and the freedom to range, but they primarily focus on spreading the cow manure patties and eating the insect and parasite larvae inside. They spread them out and sanitize them by increasing surface area and exposing them to the air, sun, and wind. This means that the cows rarely have flies on them and never need any special treatments for parasites. The salatins don't use vaccines or antibiotics. They cull sick animals quickly, monitor closely, and mimic nature, which makes for strong genetics and functional immune systems that don't need vaccines or antibiotics. Turkeys often follow the chickens, and then the pasture rests until the return of the cows, or they grow it out for hay. This system makes for delectable eggs, pasture-raised beef, and pasture-raised soup birds in a sanitized, carbon-sequestering pasture system. Joel's system sources lumber from his property that is sustainably cut and milled on site. He does supplement his laying hens with local non-GMO grain, which Joel admits is their weakest point. In winter, the Saladins rely on a clever deep bedding method where the cattle feed on baled hay for the pastures they visited lightly that previous season. They eat from troughs on pulleys that raise and lower to unload the hay from the top of the stacked hay bales as well as keep the feeding troughs off the rising ground. This all occurs inside a hay barn that is half stacked hay bales and the other half deep bedding. A layer of straw and wood chips with some grain mixed in gets laid down after each feeding to combine with the manure from the visiting cows. By mixing in the grain with this new layer of bedding, it creates a compost heap littered with fermented grains which for a pig is a cross between a buffet and a treasure hunt. 
In their enthusiastic searching, they turn the matted layers into a fluffy mix, making it easy for the farm interns to remove and relocate to where it can be fully composted. Most of the compost gets spread out onto the fields to support the foundation of the entire system, the pasture. But some goes into the Salatin's vegetable garden. The deep bedding method of adding carbon throughout a season can be applied to many different animal systems. There are chickens over winter living below rabbits inside a rakin rabbit plus chicken house where they live in a deep bedding situation. The rabbit manure and chicken manure are mixed with a carbon source like wood chips or straw regularly to keep the ratios composting and sanitary. This leads to a rising floor. By using pigs to loosen the bedding initially and using a tractor to transport the bedding to a large compost area where it can be turned further with a tractor, Joel has created a system where labor and time are saved and animals are utilized as much as possible in synchronization with their instincts. Joel hosts regular farm tours, has an internship program, and has a farm store that is open regularly while his son, Daniel Saladin, runs the daily business of the farm. It truly is a farm of many faces, but all pointed towards regeneration. New Forest Farm, reviewed by Mark Shepard. Designed to mimic the oak savanna that once dominated the Midwestern United States. Mark Shepard's New Forest Farm in Wisconsin, established in 1995 at 106 acres, 43 hectares, is the oldest commercial-sized permaculture site in America. Versaland and New Forest Farm together are the leading examples of permaculture production farming in the Midwest. Growing up, Mark recognized a dissonance between the freely given abundance of the forest and the hard, sought-after products of the garden, where serious work and constant management were required. His insight led him on a quest to solve the great, holistic problem of our day. How to live regeneratively. Inspired by Fukuoka, J. Russell Smith, Bill Mollison, and Henry David Thoreau, Mark with his family transformed former dairy farmland into an oak savanna polyculture using a network of adapted key line swales. It is managed with silver pasture, operations using chickens, pigs, and cattle, as well as alley cropping of annual vegetables. Ecological restoration is a foundational concept of Shepard's operation. His work is undoing the damage done by overgrazing and poor management even while producing food crops. His farm is a member of Organic Valley, which is a farmer-owned consortium with a product line recognized nationwide in U.S. grocery stores. While establishing his system, Mark understood that there were no known successful chestnut varieties for his area and realized that getting the right genetics would take a variety of trials. Mark has developed a system for getting the hardiest, most resilient and vigorous plants for his area, with vigor being sourced from their genetics, not water or fertilizer. The STUN method stands for Strategic Total Utter Neglect. Mark plants his trees close together, which makes it obvious which plants perform better than others, and then aggressively culls out the weak plants, as Joel Saladin does with his sick animals. This has led to selecting and propagating the best of the best of the best of the best, and so on for over 20 consecutive seasons with all his varieties. His genetics are now highly sought after and support a profitable plant nursery business. 
New Forest Farm has oak and chestnut canopies with cherry and apple in the understory. Hazelnuts at the shrub layer with caneberries currants below them and grapes climbing throughout. It is a thriving oak savanna wonderland of food, timber, and fiber where the focus is not on MPK, but on ecological health. Nature has never spent a dime on pest or disease control or fertility. Mark Shepard, Permaculture Voices, 2014. Krummeterhof, reviewed by Zach Weiss. Nearly 5,000 feet, 1,500 meters above sea level, nestled high in the Austrian Alps in a place known as Austria's Siberia, lies the Krummeterhof, Sepp Holzer's family farm, where he grew up and took over management in 1962. Since that time, it has been a place of natural farming experimentation. His experimentations and stalwart determination have earned Sepp the title Agro Rebel. Krematerhof is a 111 acre, 45 hectare site with 72 ponds and a more than 1,000 feet, 400 meter difference in elevations. With 116 days of frost and an average temperature of 41 degrees Fahrenheit, 5 degrees Celsius. The landscape is a polycultural myriad of microclimates on large terraces that prevent the slopes from eroding and allow for water they soak up to slowly release during the summers. It is covered with ponds stocked with European crawfish, carp, trout, and pike. Sepp does not irrigate. His area receives enough precipitation selecting seeds from the best plants in the poorest soils and spreading those seeds has built over time a collection of extremely hardy and exuberant plants. His microclimates at one point even supported citrus, which is unheard of in his area. He uses no soil amendments, but focuses instead on the whole system's health. Sepp uses animals to assist in managing the farm, especially pigs. Pigs will turn the soil, make ponds, and move stubborn plants like a blackberry patch just by following their natural inclinations. Housing mixed species cattle and pigs inside earth shelters, Holzer keeps them in large habitat paddocks held in place with an assortment of fencing types, living, metal, wood, electric, and more. Sepp also uses pigs with portable electric fences to reforest areas. Sepp Holzer at times, like Fukuoka, does not prune, especially in a broad acre setting. He allows the branches to grow and fall below the horizon line, which stimulates fruiting rather than vegetative growth. He also grafts his trees with sometimes very interesting combinations. He protects his trees from wildlife with a homemade bone sauce that's flicked or dabbed onto tree trunks. See picture to make your own. The sticky, stinky substance stays on the trunk's bark for several seasons, though some, like Zach Weiss, make it annually and simply flick on a dab on each tree in early spring. It is primarily animal fat, so it hardens when cool and is non-soluble, so watering or rain won't remove it. Sep is also known within the U.S. for popularizing hugel culture gardening or mound culture gardening where wood and woody biomass is buried under soil in a mound. As the wood breaks down, it releases nutrients, retains water, and can generate heat at times, but usually does not. Sepp grows annuals and perennials on his hugel cultures. He also uses them to generate topsoil. 
Once the wood is fully broken down, the mounds shrink in size but are piles of soil rich in organic matter, perfect for growing annuals and perennials. Throughout his system, Sepp also uses rocks and boulders. Boulders serve as thermal masses in his microclimates, keeping areas warm overnight and lengthening their growing season. Rock piles are also used as moisture condensers in animal habitat. Some herbs are even grown in rocky areas on the Kermiterhof because they provide the best medicine. Many wild herbs prefer naturalized soil to rich garden soils. Sepp came to this realization through observation, trial, and error. Sepp's childhood was immersed in nature and led to his deep understanding of it. Today, Sepp teaches and consults all over the world and lives at the Holzerhof. His son Joseph manages the Kermiterhof, where there are tours, classes, and new discoveries regularly occurring, such as Joseph's successful grafting of both apple and pear onto mountain ash for an extremely hardy rootstock and to keep fruit above the natural browsers. Paradise Lot with over 200 different perennial plant varieties on a tenth of an acre, 400 square meters, Paradise Lot would have been impressive in any climate, but to be in the cold, temperate climate of Massachusetts, USA, with banana plants for mulch in the front yard, and a subtropical plant-filled greenhouse in the backyard for year-round food from the garden is beyond impressive. When best friends Eric Tonsmeyer and Jonathan Bates purchased the duplex, a house split in two separate apartments in 2001, the backyard was a barren lot, devoid of vegetation. With this blank slate, Eric and Jonathan designed an abundant vision and put it into reality with hard work, persistence, and good design. From the plants surrounding the pavement of their parking spaces, which hold thermal mass, to the dense growth ringing the edge of the property like a green wall. There is no bare earth. Every space is used. Chickens are tucked onto the side of the backyard, which is only 90 by 45 feet, 15 by 30 meters. There is even aquaculture inside and outside the greenhouse. The water inside the greenhouse serves as a thermal mass, radiating heat overnight in cold winters to keep plants warm. The side yards and small backyard are a rich perennial food forest of pigeon peas, plums, mulberries, hardy kiwis, grapes, Asian pears, blueberries, pawpaws, Chinese yam, watercress, arugula, and much, much more. Jonathan and Eric sell the new plants the perennials generate and give workshops teaching locals how to make their own lots abundant. Paradise Lot is a superb cold climate urban permaculture example. The Urban Homestead, reviewed by Jordane Dervais. Since 1990, the Dervais family has been working on being self-sufficient in the middle of Pasadena, California, 15 minutes away from downtown Los Angeles and 100 feet from a major freeway with only a tenth of an acre of land to grow on, 3,900 feet squared, 1,189 meters squared. When the Dervais learned about how pervasive GMOs were in commercial food, the family mulched over the lawn and installed a tightly packed garden and homestead system providing for 75% of their food needs. They are a perfect example of hyperlocal seasonality in the city. The Dervais use biointensive planting densities to save water. The family raises pygmy goats, ducks, dwarf rabbits, and chickens for milk, eggs, and manure, but not meat. They are vegetarians. 
they sell their extra eggs, edible flowers, and organic heirloom produce to local restaurants and run a front porch farmstead, earning an average annually of $65,000. Their kitchen waste is either processed by the animals or composted in various ways, and then it is put back into the garden or used in compost tea. Since 2003, their duvets have grown 5,000 to 6,000 pounds, 2,200 to 2,700 kilograms of food every year. Using a gray water system, Oya pots, rainwater harvesting, and mulch, their annual water bill is only $600. They have a solar panel array, but no backup battery, so they are still hooked up to the grid, which is less expensive and easier for their situation, though they've expressed that outside of a city, they would like to be completely off the grid. Using less than 6 kilowatts a day, the Dervais use less than a quarter of the electricity used by the average Pasadena citizen, which is 25 kilowatts a day. The Dervais lifestyle is the glue that binds all the systems together. They use less, save more. From home-brewed biodiesel from the restaurants they work with, to the assortment of hand-cranked kitchenware, to the solar and cob ovens, to the pedal-powered wheat grinder, to seed saving, to homeschooling, to staycations, to upcycling crafts, the urban homestead is a holistic system that is not just about food or business. It is a way of life that they find ethical. Growing power. In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, former professional basketball player Will Allen started Growing Power, a program to help teens grow food for their community. It would become a new kind of urban farm that would feed 10,000 people on two acres, 8,000 meters squared year round. In a frigid climate full of fishermen, aquaculture is a logical solution to the contamination of waterways and fish stock in the North American Great Lakes. Yet before Will Allen, it was scarcely seen in the Midwest. Using a vertical stacking system of growing beds, growing powers nearly double the growing area of their greenhouses. The plants feed on the fish manure and filter the water for the fish. Plant-eating fish like tilapia can be fed vegetation that is grown by their waste in systems like these. They raise tilapia and lake perch as well as grow various greens, edible flowers, tomatoes, and peppers. Vermicomposting is a critical component to growing power with entire greenhouses filled with composting material. Through a CSA program, they sell produce, fish, oyster mushrooms, and compost, with their primary focus being on health. They feed over 10,000 people with local foods, free of biocides and synthetic fertilizers in a cold climate in an urban food desert using greenhouses, solar power, water heaters with a computer monitoring temperature, vermicompost, aquaculture, and local community support. Will Allen systems are always being improved upon and innovations are constantly being tested, such as old washing machines being used to sift compost. Experimentation, observation, and adaptation had led Will to his successful systems. Winner of the MacArthur Genius Award, Will Allen works currently in both Chicago and Milwaukee as the founder and leader of Growing Power. He teaches biointensive indoor wetland development and management and shows us all how to fight hunger and build strong, healthy communities anywhere. Ernst Gosch's Family Farm. In 1984, Ernst Gosch, a Swiss immigrant, acquired a parcel of dry land in Brazil that was completely denuded of trees and began to establish a homestead and farm for his family. 
Through careful observation of the pioneer species that appeared first on other recovering clear-cut properties with similarly poor soils, he selected commercially valuable species out of that mix and conceived a polyculture of bananas, pigeon peas, cassava, and native trees like Eritrinas and Ingas. He planted them all over his land. Within a few months, the new growth was large enough to prune, so he chopped and dropped their leaves, but he left the stalks, allowing them to regrow and prepare more mulch to be chopped and dropped. It is this regular pruning that he does perpetually that builds and maintains his soil fertility. With the tropical decomposition cycle being so rapid, composting is difficult, yet chop and drop mulch is broken down by the area's soil food web quickly. Within only a few months after the initial pruning, Ernst had enough soil on the ground to start planting valuable trees and crops. Forty years have passed since he first established those trees. Where once a dry land stood, 17 streams run year-round. There is substantially more rain, and the atmosphere is cooler than it was before the establishment of the homestead. His farm is a large, diverse rainforest that he manages with a chainsaw, machete, and loppers. His forest system produces some of the most expensive and sought-after cacao beans in the world. He also grows numerous other crops in his agroforestry and alley cropping system. The constant pruning releases gibberellic acids from the plants in the soil, which hormonally stimulates a bloom in soil biology, which in turn creates a boost in root and stem growth. Pruning is his fertilization method. The plant exudates and the mulch feed the soil food web and then support the recovering plants. Ernst's systems have rows of annual crops between rows of legumes and mulch trees that are regularly pruned down to just their trunks. The pruned perennials provide timber, mulch, and an enormous amount of biological activity in the soils through decomposition. Ernst has clearings for annuals, forage for his chickens, and fruit and nut trees, all within his rainforest systems where he and his family satisfy nearly all their needs. Quote, during my whole life, I haven't seen an invasive plant. I haven't seen any harmful plant, end quote. Ernst Ghosh, Agenda Ghosh, 2016. Ernst Gosch's farm has not gone unnoticed. Fazenda de Toca, a 2,300-hectare, 5,700-acre organic commercial farm in Brazil, worked with Ernst for several years, transitioning their farm system to agroforestry using Ernst's methods and guidance. Ernst had to adapt his manual management techniques to machine management techniques for the large-scale farm, which led to the development of new technologies. In only two and a half years, Dramatic changes and benefits were recorded in the soil's ability to hold water and provide nutrients to the plants. The farm produces fruit, eggs, and grains, and has an educational outreach program teaching ecological farming methods with farm tours and through the Toca Institute. Fazenda da Toca's goal is to prove that Ernst's methods scale up and are centropic economically, socially, and environmentally. The Albeda Project, reviewed by Neil Speckman. Albeda, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, is in the foothills of the Hijaz Mountains, south of Mecca, where nomadic herding tribes known as Bedou have grazed for thousands of years. 
These traditional peoples have ceased being nomads and are now cutting down their forests for charcoal to sell to the city while overgrazing the land, causing both deforestation and desertification. Since 2010, the Albeda Project, headed by the King Faisal Foundation and run by Neil Speckman and a crew of local tribesmen, has been greening 90 acres, 36.5 hectares of desert. This research site is a permaculture prototype that aims to create a new rural economic model that enables the Bedou to continue their practice, their animal husbandry, which is intrinsic to their culture in a regenerative and sustainable way. The project also has long-term goals related to infrastructure, public health, education, business development, and housing. It is nothing less than an attempt to save a dying culture and land. With an average annual rainfall of two to three inches, five to 7.5 centimeters a year, the site experiences droughts that can last anywhere from two to four years. It is so dry that biological decomposition is not possible. Dead plants and animals left exposed are weathered and oxidized. They do not incorporate into the soil as decomposed organic matter. When rain events do happen, they cause dangerous and erosive flooding. Moisture is fleeting in this climate and region. The Albeda project puts more water in the ground through flood management than it takes out in drip irrigation. This guarantees that they are always recharging the aquifers more than watering their trees. Starting with check dams and weirs far above the site, followed by five kilometers of swale, the floodwaters are slowed, spread, soaked, and saved. The site is watered with drip irrigation, but there are plans to wean the system off of drip irrigation to find the hardiest plants, to propagate those varieties, to replant the system with those, and then sell these genetically superior varieties. Only a few years after planting the swale berms, both the berms and beds are now completely covered with vegetation with no bare earth showing. The site development began in 2010. The first rainfall occurred in 2011, which allowed them to plant 1,000 trees and water them for an estimated four years. The next rainfall wouldn't occur until 2014, when they harvested 8.5 million liters, 2.25 million gallons of water in the earth berms and 5 million liters, 1.3 million gallons in the swales, which allowed them to plant a thousand more trees and water them for an estimated six more years. During this last event, water accumulated in a large area held in by earth berms, which allowed the water to slowly leak through, forming a slow flow on the opposite side of the berm wall. In time, when many of these sites are installed above and below each other, they will develop into seasonal streams, vegetation to soak and retain the water longer, and forests to help precipitate rain events. This system is designed to eventually be used for civil pasture, but is being used for alley cropping currently. As Neil puts it, in his area, the bacteria they need in the soil is only found in the stomach of ruminants, but their system needs to be resilient enough to withstand grazing and browsing first. If the tribes are able to produce their own dairy, meat, forage, food, oil, honey, and other farm products from a perennial system fed by annual rain events and powered only by the sun and manpower, the Albeda community would sidestep an environmental and economic disaster and instead embrace a regenerative economic and ecological model. 
At this point in development, the Albeda model is an early success that shows unlimited promise in larger scale applications. In years to come, and as larger sites are developed using Neil Speckman's model, the return on investment will be regular precipitation. Water and vegetation on the landscape, wildlife, regenerative land-based incomes, and cultural preservation. Sambajo Lestari, reviewed by Dr. Willie Smets. In 2002, biologist Dr. Willie Smits founded the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation in Indonesia, locally known as Masarang. In an effort to save and restore the habitat of the orangutan and increase their dwindling population. Deforestation has orphaned and killed thousands of orangutans. Dr. Smits has rescued over a thousand, but housing them is difficult, especially if it brings no benefit to the local people who are the ones destroying the habitat. Indonesia one of the three nations that has staked claims to the right to administer parts of the island of Borneo. The Indonesian part of Borneo, which accounts for 76% of the island, is known as Indonesian Kalimantan. Indonesia is the world's leading producer of palm oil, which is a common ingredient in cosmetics and processed foods such as Doritos and is also used as biodiesel. In order to create new oil palm plantations, or any monocultural farm system in Indonesia or in Indonesian Kalimantan, you must first destroy the rainforest that is already there. The rate of destruction is very rapid, with reports of 25% of their forests lost in only two years, 2009 to 2011. And there are plans to expand by millions of hectares more for biofuel production. In addition, these operations are destroying areas that are swampy peat marshes and peatlands, which are carbon-rich in very sensitive environments. The primary method of destruction is fire for all these natural systems. These activities make Indonesia, including its activities in Indonesian Kalimantan, the fourth largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world, and at times, a larger producer than the entire U.S. economy. Once these plantations are installed, they are maintained with machines, chemical fertilizers, and pesticides, which all lead to erosion and toxic runoff that destroys the river and stream ecologies, creating dead zones along the coastal regions where the rivers meet the sea. These dead zones destroy the coral reefs and soon after the fisheries collapse, putting more Indonesians out of work. On top of all this, coal is exported and consumed in Indonesia, and coal mining has consequences like coal seam fires, which restart forest fires every summer, consuming the peatlands and the rainforests alike. The more habitat that is destroyed, the more Indonesians take part in the destruction to provide for their basic needs. The entire country is a delicate tropical island ecosystem upon which their economy rests unsteadily. This has left the two species of orangutan, the Sumatran tiger, two species of elephant, and the Sumatran rhinoceros, along with their ecosystemic peers without a habitat. Alan Savory's point in holistic management that the environment and people are always linked holds here as well. With the destruction of the forest comes the collapse of the local economies. Once the forests have been gone for a few years, the rivers start to dry up, making life even harder for all. Willie Smits has an economic model to save the orangutans, the forest, and all its creatures, and the local people. Dr. Smits and his foundation are creating protected habitat for rainforest flora and fauna that pairs with regenerative agriculture symbiotically.
it is his belief that only in a holistic context will the rainforest and the orangutans survive. So there must be a way for people to be involved and generate a long-term yield from the forest that is competitive with the oil palm industry. Sugar palms are the answer. They require little watering and are both fire and drought resistant. Sugar palm branches are manually tapped for sap daily and it does not impede the plant's growth or photosynthesis. The sugary sap can be used in food or as fuel. It is more productive than sugarcane and sequesters carbon since it is a no-till cultivation operation. It produces more ethanol per acre than oil palm. It doesn't require gas-powered machinery to manage. It creates jobs that are hands-on and an economy that supports local workers. Dr. Smith's idea is this. Create a nucleus of rainforest plants and animals protected by a ring of spiky palms to keep the animals inside and people out. Surround the sanctuary with a sugar palm forest that people tend and have a perimeter of sugar palm and other fire resistant trees to protect the area. Dr. Smith believes that all rainforest in Indonesia needs to be co-owned by the people through the state to encourage local peoples defending it as their own. Sambaho Lestari is the demonstration site for Willie Smith's proposed system. Working with locals, his foundation teaches, develops demonstrations, and encourages local farmers to teach other local farmers regenerative practices. While the site is not yet a fully mature rainforest, there are already changes occurring with increased cloud cover and rain. Dr. Smith has even devised a business plan that follows the secession of the forest. So farmers arrive at a sugar palm forest through several seasons of various polycultures. The Sambaho Lestari, which translates to everlasting conservation of Sambaho, is regenerating the rainforest, creating jobs, planting trees, cleaning waterways, fostering a culture that values the natural world, and reintroducing orangutans to their natural setting. Currently, Dr. Smith's foundation is working with almost 2 million acres 809,371 hectares in Kalimantan, Indonesia using these advanced planting systems, which continue to evolve as more is learned from nature. Quote, in the beginning, maybe pineapple and beans and corn. In the second phase, there will be bananas and papaya. Later on, there will be chocolate and chilies. And then slowly, the trees start taking over, bringing in produce from the fruits, from the timber, from the fuel wood. And finally, the sugar palm forest takes over and provides the people with permanent income. Willie Smith's TED Talk 2009. The Green Belt Movement. The late Wengari Matai story starts with her trying to enlist women in planting trees. And it ends with her precipitating large-scale political upheaval and environmental restoration, leaving a legacy of planting trees in her wake that is still being carried forward. An adept student, Wangari earned a Kennedy scholarship to attend college and get her master's degree in the U.S. and returned home to a country that no longer looked the same to her eyes. The rivers, trees, and landscape were degrading. Children were suffering from malnutrition. Since the forests were cut down, they were eating a simplified diet of mostly carbohydrates. As the trees continued to disappear, firewood became scarce. Recognizing the missing link between their health and the landscape, Wangari organized and taught women to plant trees, going against custom and locally held beliefs. As the first woman in East Africa to earn a PhD, Wangari was empowered by her education and she encouraged other women through education to be active agents in their own lives and bioregions. 
Through her efforts, thousands of women planted trees using seeds they themselves foraged from their local area's remaining native plants. This effort began to draw attention and then harassment from the post-colonial government that was continuing the colonial practices of liquidation of natural resources. The more she organized to protect the forests, parks, and rivers, the more need for social restoration work she encountered. The environment was so tightly linked to the economy and the society that all their problems were one problem. They'd forgotten their culture and lost their habitat with colonization. The European agricultural methods of cleaning the land included clearing the tribes off the land and into tightly controlled impoundments called villages. The new government, though run by Kenyans, failed to break the pattern of abuse and corruption that imperialism had visited upon them. Wangari Matai's position as a lecturer at the University College of Nairobi, her success with organizing women, and her academic achievements gave her public credibility. It also gave her the ability to use her voice to protect land from land grabs, deforestation, and abuse by the post-colonial Kenyan government, though the conflict was fierce at times. At one point, Wangari and many mothers of political prisoners started a public hunger strike, which quickly gained immense popular support and attention. Within a few days, their protest led to a violent dispersal of the crowd by government troops, relocating in a nearby church's basement. The women continued their protest for 11 months until finally the prisoners were freed. Eventually, due to the opposition inspired and facilitated largely by Wangari's passion, example, and organization skills, President Mwa stepped down and Wangari Matai was elected to the Kenyan parliament where she continued to use her influence to help everyone see their lives in connection with trees around them, even the military. Quote, we believe that soldiers and trees are brothers. Our role is to protect the country, and the role of the tree is to protect the environment. So we play a very complementary role. End quote. Major General Nijuki Mwaniki, Taking Root Documentary 2008. Wangari's education, confidence, passion for fairness, love of nature, and open mind changed Kenya. Her work with women and trees had unexpected consequences that were political and drew her up into a larger context and conflict. Ultimately, however, she had to address the entire system of ethics, people care, earth care, and care of the future in order to solve problems involving any of them. They were all inseparable. As with the people of the Lust Plateau, the women were incentivized with compensation. Only four U.S. cents a tree in compensation from the Green Belt Movement was enough for tree planting to spread like wildfire overnight. It was also not a custom for Kenyan women to plant trees, so it felt like a breakthrough for women's rights, pairing social liberation with tree planting. At the same time, they were reconnecting to their past by rebuilding the bioregion that maintained and inspired their culture before colonial occupation. The mixture of newness, empowerment, education, heritage, and environmentalism gave the people a new perspective on life and the natural world. It forever changed how they perceived right and wrong, fairness, ethics, plants, themselves, and soil. The Green Belt Movement and Wangari Matai have inspired many thousands to have respect for themselves and the environment. Masanobu Fukuoka, reviewed by Larry Korn. As much philosopher as farmer, Masanobu Fukuoka 
is considered the father of natural farming. As a young man, Fukuoka was trained as a microbiologist and agricultural scientist. His first job was as a customs inspector in the city of Yokohama. There, at the age of 25 years old, he had an epiphany that changed his life forever. He saw that nature was completely interrelated and perfect just as it is. He realized that human beings could never improve upon nature. He tried to explain this vision to his co-workers without success. So he quit his job and returned to his family farm to create a system of natural agriculture that was based on what he considered true nature. Fukuoka began farming through a new lens. He scrutinized and studied every agricultural practice such as plowing, flooding the rice fields, pruning, and making compost to decide whether or not they were actually useful. In the end, he decided that almost none of them were necessary. Instead of asking what he could do, he asked what he could avoid doing. Fukuoka used no fertilizers, no pruning, pesticides, no tillage, no compost, and no agricultural machinery. He didn't burn his barley and rice straw after the harvest. Instead, he spread the straw over the fields as mulch. He pelletized his rice seeds with clay to prevent them from being eaten by birds and insects. Seed balls are a combination of seeds, manure, and clay, which provides the seeds with soil biology and nutrients regardless of where they land. Quote, to loosen the soil, he scattered seeds of deep-rooted vegetables such as daikon radish, burdock, dandelion, and comfrey. To clean and enrich the soil, he added plants that have substantial fibrous root systems including mustard, radish, buckwheat, alfalfa, yarrow, and horseradish. He also knew he needed green manure plants that fixed nitrogen, but which ones? He tried 30 different species before concluding that white clover and vetch were ideal for his conditions. The roots of the white clover form a mat in the top few inches of the soil, so they are effective at suppressing weeds. The vetch grows well in the winter when the white clover does not grow as readily. Masanobu Fukuoka sowing seeds in the desert. What gained Masanobu Fukuoka the most attention both locally and internationally was his way of growing rice and barley organically without tilling the soil. He only flooded his fields for seven to 10 days instead of during the entire summer, just long enough to weaken the weeds and clover and to allow the rice to sprout through. Once the rice was growing strongly, he emptied the field of water and the clover and weeds revived. Weeds are an important habitat for insects, so preserving them is critical for the overall health of the system. Flooded rice fields, in contrast, turn anaerobic by being constantly flooded and they leak methane. While the roots of his neighbor's rice were rotted from sitting in standing anaerobic water all season, the roots of Fukuoka's rice plants grew down three feet, one meter or more, and were a healthy white color. His rice plants were shorter than those of the neighbors, but Fukuoka's rice had more grains in each head. The result was that Fukuoka's rice yields were comparable and often higher than those of his neighbors who used chemicals and fossil fuels for their tractors and transplanting and harvesting machines. Plus, his method created no pollution and the fertility of his field increased with each passing season. In many ways, clover was the basis of his entire system. Fukuoka planted annuals directly into the clover and then chopped and dropped the weeds and clover to cover the seeds while they germinated. He used alley cropping in his orchards of fruit trees, which were prolific in nearly disease and pest free. 
Using free-range chickens and goats, Fukuoka was able to get complementary yields of eggs and milk in the same space as his crops of citrus, nuts, berries, and cultivated mushrooms. His entire system allowed him to work less and get high yields. Masanobu Fukuoka's farming techniques were an extension of his philosophy. He believed that people should not impose their will on nature, but should rather be sensitive to what nature is trying to express on that site and at that time. Once nature is whole and balanced again, it is imperative that we interfere as little as possible. His example has inspired many to observe, respect, and mimic natural systems. Quote, the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. End quote. Masanobu Fukuoka, The One Straw Revolution. Green City Acres Reviewed by Curtis Stone. Curtis Stone, within a few short years, has gone from being a professional musician struggling to save money to a leader in sustainable urban farming with a thriving regenerative business. Curtis has redefined what an urban farm can be with his model, which encompasses six separate farm plots equaling a total of a third of an acre, a thousand square meters. His model is efficient, effective, and adaptable to any urban region and situation. Through much trial and error, Curtis Stone has found that a blend of permaculture ethics with biointensive methods works best for farming on limited acreage in an urban setting where the waste streams are rich and diverse. Biointensive farming requires regular working of the soil, though lightly, and using compost and compost tea on the soil in order to support the constant growing of nutritious and beautiful food. When Curtis started out in British Columbia, Canada, he didn't have land, so he started growing his food on other people's property, their front lawns or backyards, in exchange for membership in his CSA. He used a bike with a bike trailer to make pickups and deliveries to save on fuel costs and be more sustainable. In Curtis Stone's system, he is using every square inch and measuring the time, money, and energy put into each step of his operation. Seeds are closely planted to create a canopy that holds moisture in and shades and covers the soil. Every bed is exactly 30 inches, 76 centimeters wide, to fit his tools and to make for easier harvesting. He uses soil blocks, pressed earth instead of seed trays to save money and produce no waste. While initially he does use a rototiller to turn over plots, from then on he only forks often and cultivates the top 1 to 1.5 inches, 2.5 to 4 centimeters of soil only. Curtis focuses on smaller sized, high value crops with a short growth cycle, 60 days or less from seed to market, that can be sold to high end restaurants, at grocery stores, and at weekly farmers markets. This allows him to have a seasonal crop rotation where he grows three to four crops in the same bed in rotation in one season. Curtis has greenhouses that allow for year-round production. They maintain a microclimate on his property so that he's always first and last to have something at the farmer's market because he's warmer first in the early spring and longer into the fall. In his greenhouses, he hard prunes his indeterminate tomatoes, which involves removing all the branches below the lowest branch of the fruit, as well as removing all suckers growth between the branches and trunk to promote a straight and singular trunk. This allows in more light over time as they get taller and encourages maximum fruiting. They are trained on a string so they don't get tangled with each other and are easy to work with. In winter, he grows on shelves in his greenhouse because the severely low angle of the sun allows it to reach all levels without shading anyone out. 
Outside the greenhouse, production can start earlier because of the heat conducting through the soil and radiating out into the air. On top of all this, the land faces south, making his farm a well-developed microclimate itself. One of the fascinating new tools that Curtis uses at Green City Acres is a tilter, invented by Elliot Coleman, which tilts the top 1 to 1.5 inches, 2.5 to 4 centimeters of soil only, and uses an 18-volt power drill to run. It doesn't disturb the soil deeply, and it doesn't turn over new weed seeds. So, it is an ideal production tool for those trying to respect the soil while growing annuals, which always requires disturbance. Another new drill-powered machine is the Quick Greens Harvester, pictured, which reduces labor exponentially, from a four-person job that would take four to six hours to a one-person job that takes under an hour. Harvesting at a rate of six pounds, 2.7 kilograms per minute, cleanly without leftover debris, keeping things sanitary and beautiful. Curtis also uses a flame weeder, which, while it sounds like a flamethrower, is a way of flashing the surface of the soil with heat to kill off weed seedlings before planting. Curtis uses row covers, cold frames, and seeding machines to save time and labor. He also spends time analyzing and redesigning his business. Careful energy auditing and fiscal analyses allows Curtis to figure out how profitable everything he is doing is and then figure out how to improve. Using the zone mapping concept, his crops on other sites are planted in relation to their tending needs. Crops that don't need tending as often get planted on the properties furthest from his own farm. Intensive operations like his greenhouse tomatoes are as close as possible to his home, often on site. Each site has different lighting and different soil temperatures at different times of the year. For what he doesn't grow himself, he trades for in order to round out his CSA boxes. He can barter for almost anything in his community that he needs. The fact that he is earning an incredible $75,000 annually with his farm system is challenging two of the most commonly held beliefs about farming. First, that you need own or lease a lot of land to do it. And second, that you can't make much money at it. His hyperlocal food model could be used to convert the 40 plus million acres, 16 million hectares of lawn in North America to food production, which would change the food system entirely within a few months time, while substantially boosting local economies and providing lasting jobs for young people everywhere. The Broad Fork Gardens, Les Jardins de Grillinette, reviewed by Jean-Martin Fortier. Jean-Martin Fautier and Maud Hélène de Roche, his partner and wife, co-own and run a bio-intensive market garden located in Quebec, Canada that is only 1.5 acres, 6,000 square meters in size, but grossed over 150,000 Canadian dollars and sold vegetables in 2015 with only four people working. Each winter, they take a three-month break. They spend less than half their year at the farmer's market and running a CSA. The rest of their time is spent in prepping their soil and systems. Their profit margins are a stunning 45%, which is unheard of in agriculture. They are making retirement money on a small plot of land using permanent raised beds. They don't use a large tractor, but they do use a BCS walking tractor, which many of their amazing machines attach to. 
They use a small amount of fuel in their tractor and delivery truck, which is biodiesel, as well as a small amount of propane in the greenhouse to jumpstart their season by warming the soil with hot water pipe beneath the soil surface. Jean Martin feels that they are more effective without a large tractor. He prefers using small walking machines that adhere to the 30-inch, 76-centimeter crop bed width and an ergonomic 18-inch, 46-centimeter wide path. Using a stale seed bed method using either flame weeding or a black impermeable tarp for several weeks of smothering, they prepare the beds to have zero weed pressure on their crops and then plant their seeds 10 to 50 times closer than the seed packaging recommends. The canopy this intensive planting creates holds moisture. When there is no bare soil, traveling weed seeds cannot find a place to germinate. The beds are all on a 10-year crop rotation plan, alternating heavy and light feeders using green manure, compost, and granulated chicken manure before heavy feeder beds are planted. Crop rotation chart featured earlier in the food forest and gardens chapter. They use wheelbarrows, shovels, hand tools, broad forks, wheel hose, regular hose, cedars, road covers, insect covers, biodegradable mulch, and more to minimize their reliance on fuel. However, they also use attachments on their walking tractor, such as a harrow, which horizontally mixes the top one to two inches, 2.5 to five centimeters, which is followed by a roller attachment creating a uniform soil surface. This perfectly prepares the soil for planting without turning the soil over or pulverizing it as a rototiller would. A flail mower is also used as a tractor attachment. It shreds the green manure. They also use a rotary plow to reshape the beds and dig out the paths to cover the flailed green manure so it can incorporate into the soil without tilling it in, which is commonly how green manure is used. Covering the row with the tarp will speed up the breakdown process so that in only a few weeks, the area is ready for planting. The farm's main inputs are labor and compost. Jean Martin and Maudelaine spend their winters planning their garden calendar out over tea. They try to plant their transplants the same day they harvest so that their most valuable real estate, the seed bed, is always being occupied and used during the growing season. Their crop rotation plan groups crops by their botanical family. They plant the same families in the same beds every four years. They have 10 field blocks on a 10-year light to heavy rotation. With these two requirements, it takes a bit of planning, but once the planning is done and the calendar is set, it makes for a predictable, profitable, stress-free, and efficient year. They rotate greens and root crops between heavier feeders like solanums, brassicas, cucurbits, and alliums, a total of 40 crops. They have a perfectly timed out, arranged, and scheduled plan for harvesting, planting, transplanting, and any other task necessary for their season. They know nearly exactly how much they can make per bed and what quantity they will need for a 200 share CSA season. The greatest challenge at Broad Fork Gardens is the insect pressure. In response, Jean-Martin and Modelaine currently use certified organic biopesticides strategically, insectary netting set to the size of the insect and daily inspections. One cucumber beetle can infect an entire row of plants with bacterial wilt. Beneficial insect and bird habitat is the permaculture solution they are testing now in a larger experimental plot with the hopes of eliminating biopesticide usage. Though far from a Fukuokian paradise of do-nothing farming with minimal inputs, it is a superb example of profitable and sustainable biointensive market gardening. They are increasingly applying permaculture, especially on their large-scale experimental farm, Quetretemps Farm, which will ultimately lead to marketable regenerative biointensive 
farming techniques that can be used everywhere. Miracle Farm, they film the miracle, reviewed by Stefan Sokobiak. Converting a conventional orchard on a 12-acre, five-hectare farm in Quebec, Canada in 1992 to certified organic by 1996 was only the first step in Stefan Sokoviak's journey to developing one of the largest permaculture orchards in North America by 2007. With 1,500 fruit trees in a diverse and regenerative series of planting guilds, the orchard showcases a model that orchardists and permaculturists in cold, temperate climates can replicate. Through much trial and error, Stefan has created a simple yet elegant perennial system. The most basic building block of his orchard system is the NAP polyculture, nitrogen fixer, apple, pear, or plum. The idea is that every tree will have a nitrogen fixer on one side. He prunes his orchard, grafts his fruit trees, and spreads a berry shrub layer with his cuttings. He uses honeysuckle bushes to draw birds away from his cherry trees instead of using netting. Sharing 5-10% to of the farm's yields with the birds, animals, and insects is expected and monitored. He also has raspberries, currants, gooseberries, and other shrub layer fruits onion, garlic, and other alliums, as well as herbs like thyme, echinacea, arugula, and oregano are present as a secondary crop and to ward off pests and provide a medicinal yield. In the first three years, while the trees and shrub layer established, they even grew annuals like ground cherry, winter squash, and watermelon. The stacked yields makes for a minimum of three annual harvests from each row. The orchard rows are laid in 10-day harvest windows so that every week before market, Stefan can go and harvest the food that is ready from only one aisle and the rows to either side which saves time and energy. This setup takes careful grouping, investment and research. He has 60 apple varieties to accomplish this feat as well, winnowed down from 100 that they trialed. This spreads and diversifies his yields out over the season. Their CSA members harvest most of the food themselves in a U-Pick operation with the rest being sold at the roadside kiosk or eaten by wildlife. He also focuses on varieties that are disease resistant, taste incredible, and are pest resistant if possible. Stefan grows his own rootstock from root suckers collected from fully grown rootstock trees. Once these new rootstock trees are a year old and large enough, he grafts desirable varieties onto them using scoins from the pruned branches from his own fruit trees. To minimize the need for pruning so many trees, Stefan uses wires to hold his young tree branches below the horizon line for approximately two months. When a fruit tree's branches are pointed downward or horizontal, the trees focus on bud growth reproductive and not upward growth vegetative. Trees allowed to develop upward pointing branches have lower fruit production. For a home orchardist, he provides a model for a permaculture orchard that is easy to manage, abundant, and regenerative. Using misters, Stefan prevents flowers and fruit from freezing on colder nights. The constant movement of water prevents it from freezing. He also uses red dots painted on sticky yellow pieces of plexiglass as his apple fly traps and uses non-biodegradable plastic over his rows and plants his trees, shrubs, and herbs in holes in the plastic. This traps moisture, heat, and prevents weeds from competing with his plants as well as helps prolong the lifespan of his dripline irrigation system. Stefan is constantly observing the birds and insects, knowing that they are the indicators of his system's health. Stefan mows only half of every third row 
a sixth of the orchard at a time to allow the insects to migrate and remain in the immediate areas of his plants, and then returns to mow the next row's half the following week, and so on for six weeks. This helps maintain beneficial bug populations. They also have habitat for bumblebees, leafcutter bees, and mason bees in addition to honeybee hives. With different sets of trees and plants flowering every week or two in the orchard throughout all the growing seasons, the pollinators, especially the honeybees, are consistently feeding on pollen and consistently facilitating fruit production. The diversity of one supports the other. It leads to an abundance of both new bee colonies and honey production. Leveraging nature and using permaculture patterning, Miracle Farm truly is a miraculous model for permaculture orchardists everywhere. Celebration Farm. The Celebration Farm was born out of Dr. Elaine Ingham's desire to prove biological farming's efficacy in a side-by-side -side comparison with conventional farming. Outside Oroville, California, on the edge of the Plumas National Forest, the Celebration Farm was established in 2015. It is partly a restoration site and partly an experimental farm. The previous owners had sprayed glyphosate and other herbicides profusely for many years, and the soils in the meadows and the open areas around the house were all bacterial dominant, compacted, and contaminated with biocides. Using compost tea and compost, Elaine is transforming the soil all over her farm. The goal of biological farming is to grow nutrient-dense foods regeneratively using the microbiology in the soil. Without using earthworks, Elaine used soil biology to create a self-sustaining palm oasis in Saudi Arabia in only six months. She is doing more using less energy and effort by leveraging the power of the soil life. Oases that have survived for thousands of years in the deserts are maintained by the same system Elaine has developed in only six months. Oases that have survived for thousands of years in the deserts are maintained by the same system Elaine developed in only six months. There are several ponds at different levels on the 60-acre, 24-hectare property. They provide water for irrigation via a concrete trough installed in the 1850s and piping in the areas where the trough is damaged. It is one of the many ongoing restoration projects. There are also heirloom apple varieties planted by gold miners who worked in the mine at the top of her hill that she is grafting onto rootstock to preserve their genetics. In addition to experimentation and research, Elaine teaches composting courses and is developing a large composting facility on site. The side-by-side -side comparisons of the effects of conventional compost, compost extract, and compost tea on plant performance are invaluable, and it's surprising that it has not been done previously. This site was initially rototilled to break up the layers of compaction and trap pesticides, which create deposition layers and impermeable layers as they are watered. Following a fungal dominant regimen of compost tea applications, the garden plots were built on contour for flood irrigation. Dr. Elaine Ingham is setting out to prove that if the pH and the soil biology is correct, weed seeds will not germinate even if they are present in the soil and receiving plenty of water and light. She is convinced and determined to demonstrate unequivocally that recipes of compost, compost extracts, and compost teas that focus on feeding particular components of the soil food web produce specific beneficial effects. There is no standard recipe for soil remediation. It is all site and goal dependent. At the George W. Bush Presidential Library site in Dallas, Texas, the 13-acre, 5-hectare grounds were transformed from lifeless, compacted soils into authentic native prairie, using compost as the only soil amendment.
Dr. Elaine Ingham was an integral part of the team that made this happen. It required her soil expertise to determine the exact fungal bacterial ratios needed. Once the 300 tons of compost were acquired, the installation only took a single year to fully establish, despite it having been flattened parking lot in many areas. Fully grown live trees were installed with compost surrounding the root balls. Compost was used everywhere. Earthworks were built to capture and concentrate the moisture. Despite it being a drought year with no rain and no irrigation used on the site, a small pond formed just from the dewfall. The native trees and plants that were transplanted partnered so effectively with the specifically tailored compost, it was a resounding success. Dr. Elaine Ingham teaches online, speaks at conferences, has authored many books, is the author of the USDA's Soil Primer, consults with farmers, designs and overseas installations, and continues her experiments at Celebration Farm. Her work has radically changed the accepted scientific understanding of soil. As a consultant, she has designed a dewfall garden in Saudi Arabia, a commercial vineyard in the arid interior of Australia without irrigation, the George Bush Presidential Library grounds in Texas, and a carbon credit farm in South Africa, where they sequestered six tons of carbon per hectare a year, building two to three feet of soil annually. The future is incredibly bright and encouraging if we can just apply Dr. Elaine Ingham's research and follow her example. Quote, once you have the organisms in the soil, they will work for you, as long as you don't kill them. Healthy soil, properly maintained, can reduce or eliminate the need for irrigation, the need for hoeing or weeding, the need for tilling, and can decrease water consumption up to 70% in some places, and increase yield significantly, and increase nutrition in those foods. On an average 300-acre farm, we generally reduce costs for growers by $200,000 in the first year. End quote. Dr. Elaine Ingham, Lecture Notes, Work Computer Workshop, 2015. Rosemary Roe Morrow. Permaculture pairing with humanitarian aid work is a natural partnership. Many well-known designers like Jeff Lawton and Darren J. Doherty do humanitarian aid work with permaculture, working with groups like the UN, World Bank, and more. Rosemary Romaro, born in Perth, Australia, was likely the first person to use permaculture in a post-war situation. But her model of coming in after or during conflict to help families grow food using permaculture became an enduring model that is replicated today by thousands of permaculturists across the globe. Initially teaching reading and writing informally to children in Lesotho, Africa, on the border of apartheid-era South Africa. Roe recognized the need for permaculture in areas of conflict, which led to her serving in many areas of need. Vietnam, Bhutan, Ethiopia, Cambodia, Uganda, and more. Her usual method is to train government officials or area leaders so that they can then teach the people of the area using their own gardens as examples. For the people that Roe serves, Permaculture provides a way for them to grow more food in marginal spaces and in new creative ways. Having more food in these areas makes an enormous difference in their quality of life, especially for children. Specifically in Cambodia, Roe was instrumental in starting a program that was both successful and still endures to this day and continues to spread in four provinces currently. In Roe's own words, quote, Post-war food restoration with permaculture began in Cambodia when women extension workers in the Persat Department of Women's Affairs 
the PDWA, learned permaculture. First, they spent six months developing their designs in their own gardens, which they used as teaching sites. Then, they went to villages, marketplaces, houses, and taught farmers. They taught them to design, then to make gardens, next select and grow fruit trees, and to reuse waste products more efficiently. They have gone further. Now, there are small processing industries in nurseries. The economy and the environment have changed. Next. They went to another province, the White Skirt Zone, No Man's Land, and Rain province. Here, every living thing had been wiped out. Farmers were reoccupying a desert land. The farmers learned permaculture in one year instead of the usual two to three. They were extraordinarily successful in restituting food supplies without damage to the environment. The PDWA has now taught in at least four provinces. And as farmers in the villages copy each other, we don't know how many Cambodian farmers are permaculturists, but there are thousands and they are us. The success of these projects, as in Vietnam and other countries, is to embed the permaculture knowledge into the local staff who then use it as part of their outreach. And the other factor is finding the local people or person with the imagination to see where permaculture can go. And it takes a little time, perhaps five years before 60% of the local population is practicing permaculture in one way or another. Its success was that permaculture was absorbed through in-service training and became the extension curriculum for government departments for sustainability. This has also happened in one district of Uganda." End quote. Rosemary Morrow, 2016. Roe continues today to teach teachers permaculture through her books, online courses, lectures, and classes. She is an enduring example of what people care is in permaculture. Bhutan. Tucked between the two most populous countries in the world, India and China, Bhutan is a country of less than 700,000 people located in the Himalayas. It is also the only carbon negative country in the world. They sequester three times what they generate in CO2. With a GDP of less than $2 billion a year, Bhutan is categorized as a less developed country. But despite the categorization, Bhutan is managing to be more regenerative than all other countries, especially considering that it is also the only carbon neutral country. Despite Bhutan's small economy and self-imposed restraints, the government provides free healthcare, schooling, merit-based college education, electricity to rural farmers to prevent them from burning wood, subsidies for clean energy vehicles, and more with limited resources that are carefully managed. It is all part of their holistic plan. Quote, we are thriving, balancing economic growth carefully with social development, environmental stability, and cultural preservation all within the framework of good governance. We call this holistic approach to development Gross National Happiness, or GNH. Back in the 1970s, our fourth king famously pronounced that for Bhutan, gross national happiness is more important than gross national product, end quote. That's Tishiring Tobge, Prime Minister of Bhutan, TED Talk 2016. Bhutan is 72% forested. 
The Bhutan Constitution stipulates that 60% must remain forested for all time. The government is also paperless, and there is a focus on LED lights. Using the runoff from the Himalayan snowmelt, clean hydropower provides clean electricity that is sold to countries like India and China to offset their carbon usage. Because of this, Bhutan is also a world leader in carbon sinking and offsetting. Despite all these amazing positives, climate change is affecting their country. The Himalayan glaciers are melting as are glaciers worldwide. It is changing the ecology. Glacial flash flooding is now becoming common and increasingly dangerous. This has spurred government programs for action support and education. They've created biological corridors for large animals to move freely through the country, which is increasingly important as habitats shrink and climate change forces habitat migrations. Currently, Bhutan has almost reached its goal of raising enough funds to permanently set aside protected lands. When it does, it will be firmly on the path to fulfilling its holistic goal of remaining carbon neutral forever. Let us hope that all countries everywhere in the world follow their example. Quote, economic growth is important, but that economic growth must not come from undermining our unique culture or our pristine environment, end quote. Tishering Tobge, Prime Minister of Bhutan, 2016. The Los Plateau Water Rehabilitation Project, reviewed by John D. Liu. The Los Plateau in China has long been a place plagued by erosion and desertification. It was once a fertile paradise and the birthplace of settled agriculture in China approximately 10,000 years ago. The people from this area were the Han, who historically were and currently are the largest ethnic group in China. As agriculture developed and bloomed, dynasties maintained their headquarters in this area, but as the fertility waned, it was abandoned. When agriculture became impossible, they turned to grazing with sheep and goats. The continuous grazing led to desertification, which led to erosion, which is the reason for the Yellow River's color and name. The wind carries the silt in dust storms far into China, blocking the sky and making it difficult to see and breathe. Without vegetation, 95% of the water runs off, creating enormous gullies. The flooding, that occurs when the dikes break on the Yellow River is disastrous and has killed millions in single events as recently as 1931. It has been a persistent real threat to Chinese daily life for millions for millennia, which has earned it a second name, China's sorrow. In under 10 years, the ecological damage which has accumulated over centuries has been dramatically reversed through the Los Plateau restoration projects. Documented by filmmaker John Dennis Liu, founder and director of the Environmental Education Media Project, EEMP, this project involved the local people, government officials, and the World Bank working together on a holistic goal of mutual benefit for each party and the bioregion. The people were given long-term contracts on sections of land decided upon by the locals themselves. So they would be directly benefiting from the restorative work they did and involved in the allotment of the land itself. One critical component of the plan was the removal of the grazing animals from the overgrazed land. 
The other crucial component was a policy to stop all agricultural activities that involved disturbance of the soil on land with more than a 20% slope. In place of slope agriculture, perennial shrubs and trees were planted, which revegetated the landscape. The Los Plateau lessons then became policy all over rural China. All slopes became no-go areas for plowing, and farmers received long-term subsidies for the apparent loss of immediate productivity. The government paid for the goat and sheep feed during the transition, which actually increased the protein in the animals' diets. The first work needed on the plateau was installing earthworks for water infiltration. Swale-like terraces were dug by hand with shovels, and then trees were planted, sometimes in bowls of packed earth. Since the rich Lus silt only needs organic matter to be productive, there was an explosion of vegetative growth within only a few seasons of water retention. A decade later, 500 million US dollars invested in over 500,000 square kilometers restored. The project is heralded a success. What began as one project with a budget of 150,000 US dollars with 15,600 square kilometers of land to restore gained an extension to grow 35,000 square kilometers. More funding led to Chinese laws being changed to allow for the rehabilitation practices to spread to other areas on the Los Plateau, ballooning the project impact to over 500,000 square kilometers. Today, the province is prospering and its perennial model is being adopted all over the world to reverse the effects of desertification. The landscape is covered in green growth and is now producing perennial crops at such a rate that most citizens involved are earning more than they ever imagined possible. This has led to a locally shared exuberance and optimism about both the environment and the economy. The enthusiasm, the amazing rebound of growth, and the viral spread of regenerative practices are all similar in the way they spread and are all linked. Whereas hunger was rampant in the 1960s, electricity was a rarity and parents feared their children would only inherit a more degraded landscape. Now hope and incomes are steadily on the rise. Being the solution to a problem that has plagued their region and people for thousands of years has fundamentally changed the people's outlook on life. The project's efforts alone restored 35,000 square kilometers of land, the equivalent size of Belgium. Yet at the same time, it spread virally and they restored over 500,000 square kilometers, the local economy, culture, and mental outlook. The success of the project was facilitated by their conscious effort to balance the needs of the environment, the people, and the future. While their efforts continuously sequester carbon, the fruit trees that were absent only a few years prior are creating a new industry with the Los Plateau in line to be a new global supplier of tree fruit. Reflecting on examples. In collecting together these examples of permaculture in action, it was interesting to find that each one includes experimentation and places consistent emphasis on adaptation. While some may have aspects that could be criticized, they all demonstrate successful examples of applied permaculture in varied scenarios. And they all share the same goal of becoming more regenerative in a holistic way. Often, the most influential and successful examples are the ones that involve large communities and focused on linking social change to environmental change. More than growing food or teaching regenerative techniques, these examples demonstrate how people care is central to earth care. <laughs>